Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Agosto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Eric Bloom to the show. Eric worked for over 18 years at Comedy Central as a director, writer, and producer on original content featuring movie actors. And, in fact, that's exactly where I met him, back in the day when we were making funny stuff to promote the release of my movie, Fired Up. He's worked with the biggest names in comedy, including, among many others, people like Seth Rogen, Will Ferrell, and Ben Stiller, and he has won numerous industry awards for that content. He's also directed national commercials for products like J. Crew, L'Oreal, and Axe, and has written and directed comedy projects for networks and digital networks like Netflix, True TV, Funny or Die, Cartoon Network, and Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud. One of the things that cemented our early friendship was his gifting me some of the coolest swag I'd ever received to that point, the centerpiece being a new PlayStation 2 that had the Comedy Central logo printed on it. I still have it, if you can believe that, although I've been waiting over a decade for an upgrade. Let's see if I can get him to commit on air to gifting me another one with a Netflix logo this time. Welcome to the show, Bloom. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> Eric, you're... Your energy was so subdued compared to my welcome to the show, Bloom. Nothing could match a man's love for a PlayStation. <laughs> oh, Eric. Oh, I can't wait. That I was not excited. It's so funny. You are such, such an energetic friend of mine, and I feel like you're bracing yourself. I want to mention a couple of things that when I think about you uh, and some of the kind of tentpole events in our friendship, one was you sitting at my table, my wife and I's table on our wedding night, you and your husband, David. Eric, were you guys married? You were married after our marriage, right? Because gay marriage was legalized the day before my wife and I were married. That's correct, right? That is correct. We uh, got married several months after your wedding. Yeah, right. I couldn't remember... I mean, I, it made sense that it worked that way, but yeah. And then we were at your wedding. And uh, another one is that you got me and my two brothers tickets to the roast of Charlie Sheen. And we had a lot of fun. And I'm just remembering the joy of that time. And my brothers still talk about that sometimes. That was a long time ago. Yes, the brothers are as wonderful as you. Well, that's sweet. That's sweet. I don't know what to say about sure. that. They are. They are lovely. Pat and Andy, this one's for you. Lots of great times between us. Lots of intimate and probing conversations. And that's why I'm excited to have you on the show. Let's ask the uh, real softball question here. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, this morning for breakfast, all I had was a yogurt. We buy them in uh, equal distribution Greek and um, Icelandic yogurts. Oh. And I have one of those before I go for my morning run. I morning run on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And Tuesday, I hate the run. Thursday, I loathe the run. And Saturday, I want to kill myself. <laughs> but I'm doing it. I'm doing it. What is the core difference between Greek and Icelandic yogurts? What's well, funny you should ask that, Nick. They're very different. Um, the Icelandic is a little more almost like of a custard, if that makes sense. It's a little thicker in consistency. 
The Greek is more what we traditionally know as a yogurt, yet still much thicker than a traditional yogurt, say, in the Yoclay variety. Yeah, those are almost more like puddings. Yes, but it's good. I have a little protein, that's it. I'm not really a breakfast person. Occasionally, I like, my mother used to make us what she called breakfast for dinner. So I don't know if this is maybe a Pennsylvania thing. Like once a month, once every two months, we would have like bacon and eggs and toast for dinner. Yeah, that's great. And we loved breakfast for dinner. We loved it. Yeah, that's great. I don't know. I mean, certainly we didn't call it with a cool title that you could look forward to. Like, (laughs) all right, kids, you know, Friday, you got breakfast for dinner is coming. And also that's not how you talk in Pittsburgh. Okay, last question about food. Do you do breakfast for dinner at all with you and David? I do, Nick. In fact, we just did it about a month ago, much to David's glee. Oh. He was very happy about it. And I said, this can happen again. Oh, and what? And was it exactly what you said? Was it like toast, eggs, bacon? It was toast, eggs. It was actually sausage. Okay. Like a nice sausage patty. And um, <laughs> it, was, it was really yummy. I'm not going to lie. That's it's just cute. very difficult to pair a wine with. Oh, that's really funny. Oh, that's great. Well, I guess you should drink mimosas next time. Maybe. I was unprepared. (laughs) (laughs) That makes Just a little something I had to work out. I love that. Eric, let's do it. Let's get into the the meat of this. I'm ready. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Well, I grew up a uh, Catholic child in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And my mom did go to church every Sunday. And I went, you know, as you do when you're a kid, because you just are taken. And I went to a Catholic grade school from grades one through eight, uh, before then going to a public high school. That all of that sort of Catholic doctrine and dogma, if I'm even using the words correctly anymore, um, were, you know, very much a part of my life from a very young age. So, you know, I was baptized and had a a confirmation, I think they call it, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, chose the name, you know, the big thing when you're in, I think it's right around like seventh grade, maybe. It was eighth grade Um, for me, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's right around there. And you're confirmed, you get to like pick a new name, but then it has to be the name of a saint. Mm -hmm. So it can't be like, you know, Electra or something. So, <laughs> yeah. um, was your impulse to choose Electra in eighth grade? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from. So, <laughs> I know, that's um, great. Not that I couldn't pull off Electra. I no, for sure. That. I would not, but I would um, not put that past you. So, I chose the name Matthew because I always wanted Matthew to be my actual name. Oh, really? Uh, so, yes. So, I was all of the things confirmed and baptized and. Uh, you know, obviously, when you go to a Catholic grade school, you have religion class as one of your seven, eight classes per day, and you go to church sometime during the week in addition to the Sunday that you're going. So God was just kind of always a a present concept. I will say, though, my mom, who has a very close relationship with God, uh, is how I always phrase that, was never a Bible quoter. I don't even know if we had a Bible in our home growing up. So there was no Bible nonsense. And she didn't really ever say like Jesus. She wasn't a Jesus person either. Hmm. And I always think those are important things to clarify when talking about sort of organized religion and in those ways. 
So that's the background. It was just always kind of there. And I was a very inquisitive child. I'm very, I'm a very curious person, as you know, personally. Um, I do. I've even been bi curious, actually. Hey, uh, hey, yo. Thank you, the 90s. And um, <laughs> so I, um, I asked a lot of questions when I was in Catholic grade school to the point where, you know, the nuns would call my mom and say, he really has a lot of questions. Huh. What would your mother say? She would say, yes, he does. And um, he's just going to keep asking them. So um, mm. this was like a very, you know, the nuns were very, I still, I, I was on the very end of that sort of traditional Catholic upbringing where half the school was nuns, half the school was lay teachers. But the nuns, you know, I remember there was one time where the nun asked me the next day what I thought of her live talent presentation the day before. And I told her that I didn't think it was very well done. And the and this nun called my mom and said that I was speaking inappropriately. And my mom told her if she didn't want my opinion, she shouldn't have asked. Wow, that is so I always, awesome. I always had that mom. That's so great. yeah, I had a lot of questions. Like here's, maybe I don't need to jump to a thing, but one thing that I've always been confused about and still am to this day is that when you grow up in the Catholic church, it's founded upon this concept of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Mm. And when you do the sign of the cross, that's who you're saluting or whatever the word is. But like, and I remember in like seventh grade asking, okay, I'm clear on the Father, I'm clear on the Son, but what is the Holy Ghost exactly? And none of them could ever really answer it to my satisfaction. Yeah. It was always kind of like, well, it's the spirit of, God. And I was like, but how does that manifest itself? Or how is that? And they would just be like, just, it's just a thing that it's very ethereal. And I just, here's my thing. If you're going to found your entire religion on this concept, at least have like the marketing down. (laughs) So it was very confusing to me that no, I mean, maybe that was just the luck of the draw with the nuns that I got. And I just, they never were great at explaining the Holy Ghost part. Do you have a sense of what that is? Yeah, no, I I think that it's very, I don't have a good lockdown answer for that. You make me want to, I've actually written it down that I'm going to go research some articles and link them in your show. What it's trying to get at though is what what you've already sort of intimated, which is there is something that lives in the world that makes the world full of things like fate and it can do good works. It is a spiritual, it's, I've always thought about it like, you know, when you're watching like a, an animated movie or something and you see the wind blow through the trees, but the wind is actually drawn as these sweeping lines. And that's always felt like what the Holy Spirit is to me from the Catholic perspective. It's this thing that is the energy of, of God's wishes blowing through the earth. But I don't know if that's really true. And I think it's a really interesting concept. I think it's notoriously difficult to to discern. Well, I think you did pretty well. And I actually think if this podcast doesn't work out, you should consider becoming a nun. (laughs) I'd love it. Because that is the best description (laughs) I've heard, actually. It sounds nice. It's just a little esoteric. For sure. Very hard for a child to understand that, too. So a couple of basic things. Do you have any siblings? 
I do. I have an older brother and an older sister. And were either of them really into the church or anything like that? Or were you all kind of... They were not. Um, and we all, you know, as young adults, stopped going to church on Sundays. But now my sister participates in her church. She has moved to the South. And she's the treasurer, I think, of the church down there. And uh, it it's sort of a community part of her life now. And your father never participated in any of this stuff. It's only your mother bringing you to church? No, he did. My dad actually sang in church every Sunday. My dad was a stupendous singer, actually. Wow. He had a colossal, huge, beautiful voice. And he sang Oh Holy Night at the Christmas Mass every year. However, wow. he went to a different church, not the one that was close to our home, because the church where he sang was just a different church, the one that he had grown up in, in a different neighborhood in Pittsburgh. So again, I grew up in a very religious home on one level, but not in like any kind of fire or brimstone scenario or in a Bible thumping background or anything. But God was always an entity. Uh, we did not pray before dinner, for example. Okay. Uh, we did on Thanksgiving only, which is kind of hilarious now when I look back at it. Yeah, but, like um, the, the one, the least religious. Yeah. <laughs> High you know how people are. Yeah. yeah, some people are like Easter and Christmas churchgoers, you know. Right. But it was... Your uh, Thanksgiving and Fourth of July. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. You know, I was taught to believe in God, and it, it serves my mother now some amount of dismay that I, I don't believe in God. And we have many, many, many conversations about it, um, but always in a way of um, really respecting where the other one comes from. And I, I feel lucky that, you know, it was never a, a big deal. I mean, obviously, you know, when you come out as a gay person, it's very difficult to reconcile a relationship with the organized Catholic church. And if your faith is really important to you, I think you can still, you know, have a, a faith, but being within the organized system is another thing. Yeah, and actually this is a wonderful place for us to kind of leave a cliffhanger of sorts because this begins the next major journey of your story. And we're cutting out a little early, but we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with a, a longer second section. So we'll be back in just a second with Eric. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Eric. And 
as he mentioned at the end of the last segment, he's just about to tell us about how he began to discover his sexuality. What were the early stages of that discovery? And how did that, how did you navigate that with your family? Well, I think in terms of, you know, coming out, you know, to keep on theme with the show here uh, in terms of sort of faith and religion, obviously, once you come out, there's a, there are many people who sort of use Bible quotes and, you know, sort of God stuff in prejudicial and um, unfortunate ways. And that's a big reality for any gay person whether faith and religion are a big part of your life or a small one, it's not something you can avoid. You're, it's in your face all the time. It's on the news. It's on, I mean, there's always somebody talking about that in a negative light. And it's just a bummer. And I think, you know, most people agree that's a bummer. Mm-hmm. So at some point, you get that feeling that you don't want to be a member of a club that doesn't want you. You know, you're kind of told as a gay person to get lost uh and Mm. that you're you know you're wrong and you're sinning or whatever all those things people who believe that believe and that wasn't the sort of um reason that i didn't continue being a part of the faith or the catholic church but i think you know obviously i'm talking about two different things here in terms of faith in god or a higher being and then organized religion, in in this case, the Catholic Church, which again, I think are two very different things. Yes. But I feel that I never had a sense of real faith. It was something that God was sort of a concept that was always presented to me very early in my life. I learned all the words at church and I did it. I liked being a part of the Catholic school system, while I can be critical of it as an adult, it's only because I also am the beneficiary of all the really great stuff that it provided and, you know, gave me the foundation for all the important stuff, you know, like respect your elders and treat people the way you want to be treated and be kind to each other. And you know, that was definitely the environment that I grew up in, in that Catholic school. And I'm, I'm super grateful for it. And I'm not cynical about it at all. But at the same time, it all just started to seem a little silly to me. And I never felt this sense of a faith. It was something that they were rehearsed words that I was saying. And I didn't realize that it didn't mean anything to me personally. Do you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like I was, I knew all the lines to the play and I was going out every night doing the play and I thought I was doing A Streetcar Named Desire or Angels in America, but I was really just doing Tina and Tony's Wedding. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. it just didn't feel like it was truthful or within me. Um, and I'm, and, you know, sometimes I'm envious of people who do feel that. Uh, sometimes I don't long for it, but again, I'm not cynical about those who have it. So it doesn't sound like there was any tension between you and your parents regarding religion when you were young. There was not. And, you know, my mom always said when we were young adults, that it was our decision if we wanted to go or not to church on Sunday. And none of the three of us did as young adults. And it was, uh, 
it was okay. When did you start seeing the community you wanted to be a part of? When did you start articulating for yourself, okay, this is actually the place that feels like home to me. This is the place that feels like there's a real resonance in the relationships. And this is the thing I'm going to start associating myself with for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think it was. I sort of have spent a lot of time at the church and altar of, of friendship. Uh, and, you know, this whole, as many adults do, this idea of like a chosen family. And I was very lucky uh, in high school to have met five or six uh, really amazing people who were still in my life 35 years later, who, you know, taught me how to be a friend and what that meant. And then, of course, that took a leap further going away to college and, you know, finding a group of theater friends that I did theater with in undergrad, where you have that moment where it's like, oh, these are my people. Mm-hmm. And I think most people find that group in, in college or it's common. And it definitely was for me. And it was that sort of thing that, you know, even my my friends from high school still were very much in that in the world of the expected path that I clearly was not on just by being gay, you know. And and at that time in the early 90s, there wasn't, you were sort of told that if you were gay, you definitely weren't going to be going down this expected path. You know, there was no such thing as marriage or adopting a kid or, you know, people just didn't do that then. So there was that level of doubt thrown into your brain that you were never going to fit the the path. Uh, When, of course, that's what most people, gay or straight, do. Uh, now, but it didn't feel real back then. So, of course, being with a group of people that were not on the path as well, um, and that that's not a sexuality thing. I would say all the, the straight friends that were my in my family in college were just off-the-path people having nothing to do with sexuality, but just their desires and dreams weren't what they were with everyone that I grew up in Pittsburgh. And that's no no judgment on that either. The, those friends of mine have gone into amazing lives with professional success and amazing families. And that was their dream and they made it happen and they made it happen powerfully and beautifully. And I'm so thankful to still be a part of their lives. But it was just, I was different. So your mother has always been kind, even though you talk about your conversations with her as being you know, you still talk about God, you're kind of going at each other a little bit about it in a not aggressive way, but in a in an open discussion way where you can speak freely with each other and you're not hurting each other's feelings beyond the point of no return or anything like that. Sounds like she was a real champion of yours when you were growing up. And how did your father fit into that dynamic? What did you lean on him for? What did you get from your father? Where did you connect? Where did you not connect? And was was your sexuality an issue regarding your relationship to him? Well, my dad was like many dads of that era, which means that he got married very young, had kids very young, and didn't get to fulfill his dreams. And he wasn't 
a happy person. He was an alcoholic, uh, mm. a very functioning alcoholic, you know, never hit us, never missed days of work because of drinking. But, you know, he was the dad who got drunk every Sunday watching the game with the guys and then came home and picked a fight with my mom. Mm. And that was every Sunday. And he was not a part of the social life of my brother or my sister or me. So, you know, when I grew up, my mom knew every friend that I had. She knew their names. Sometimes she knew their parents. It was a very, she was very integrated into what I was doing. You know, my dad went to a job that he did not love to provide for us for three decades. And he saw that as his part of the deal. And so, you know, none of the three of us were close to him in the way that, of course, you were close with someone who is integrated into your life as our mom was. Mm. And, you know, yeah, sexuality was, I think, I mean, here's the thing, by the time I came out, you know, when I was almost 20 or or so, I didn't really care what he thought Mm. because I didn't care what he thought about anything because he had never been part of my life. So I wasn't... um, I wasn't too concerned. And like most families, there are always those things that that you don't talk about and that you don't question too far. We just didn't have a dynamic where we would ever have talked about anything serious or real. So it wasn't like it was because of a gay thing that we didn't talk about it. We just didn't have that relationship. Hmm. And it didn't weigh on you. It doesn't sound like, I mean, it did to some extent. I mean, it must have to some extent, right? Like anybody would have, I would assume you have some elements of loss maybe that you're like, why doesn't this guy give a shit about what I care about, you know? But what you're saying is it didn't burden you. You had enough parental love from your mother that you didn't feel entirely burdened by that loss. You know, Nick, I mean, of course, though, it's an incredibly painful thing that, I was not close to my dad or did not have a great relationship with him. It's really sad. It's always made me sad. And it ate me alive when I was a young kid and and through my teens. Mm. Um, You know, but it's just when you become an adult, there's part of trying to wrap your head around how far you can grow a relationship with someone who has no idea how to have one And I didn't have the wherewithal knowledge or grace to be the one to lead he and I through that. Hmm. And because I didn't in my 20s, which is probably when it could have happened, by the time I did have some sense of how to do that, too much time had passed and I just didn't need him. Yeah. Isn't this a fun, fun podcast? I love this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> this is what I like talking about. They're like, I thought this was the comedy guy. Wow. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, it's super painful, sure. And, you know, when he died, I think all my, bro- my brother and my sister and I all felt really bad that we didn't feel worse. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, that's, it's tough. It's really tough. But, um, you know, I just didn't, get to have that in my life. So it does, it weighs on me, sure. Like, yes, should I have done more? Could you have done more? Could I have done more? But then part of me is totally fine that I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I think you said it quite eloquently. It's it's a lot to put on a whatever ten to twenty year old to try to be the one that navigates that. So I'm just so glad I said it eloquently. Lord, <laughs> I was worried. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's beautiful, man. In circles. Look, the show has uh, the other delicacies on the end of it for a reason. You know, I'm always finding like I learn so much about the world through people being open and honest about the things that have steered their life and emotional life in particular one way or another. And I, I appreciate you sharing about that. So many people have that experience. I didn't have that exact experience, but you know, so many people do. And I think part of the subtlety there is that when you have to come out to friends and family, there isn't a question of, I hope they accept me now that I, they know this. Because the reality is they have to, or they can't be in your life. So you, hmm. it's a different sort of thing. So, you know, on some level with my dad for years, there, of course, there is that thing. I'm like, oh my God, well, I want him to love me and I want him to, I want to be closer to him. And, you know, I want him to come to see me in my school shows, which he didn't come to see, or I want him Ugh. to, you know, fill in the blank. But like there is, that's all coming from a place of desire and acceptance and need. But with the gay thing, you can't have that because that's not going to change. And so it definitely just becomes about this is the news and, uh, you know, let me know when you're with the program. I mean, I remember when I told my mom, I did say to her that, you know, I said, I don't expect you to just be great with this news. You will have your own journey that you go on as the parent of a gay kid. And I'm here for you if you want to talk to me about where you are on your journey, or if you don't want to talk to me and want to talk to friends or whatever, that's great too. But I do want you to know you have your own sort of journey ahead. And so I get that. But at the same time, if she hadn't gotten with the program or, or anyone, they can't be in your life. Yeah. So it becomes very clean cut in that way. Wow. Because, you know, it's one of those, if you don't support this, you don't support fundamentally who I am. And I mean, you're, you're friends with a lot of gays. If they all of a sudden you were kind of like, well, I don't know, marriage still is weird to me. You wouldn't be friends with those people. Yeah, right. No, you don't have, you know, they, they don't get it's to It's just not together. a, you can't, you know, or it's not like, oh, I'm, you're Italian? I don't like pizza. I mean, it's not, there's no equivalent. <laughs> you know? so, um. Well, I do think that that was, um, I did want to comment that I think that that does actually sound like you were quite self-actualized to be able to tell your mother, you know, while you're doing it, like, look, I know that this is going to be hard for you, but it really shows just the extraordinary difference in relationship that you had with your mother and your father, for you to be able to say you didn't quite have the language for your father, which I completely understand, but then to have the language with your mother that and the familiarity and comfort that you could actually guide her, you could express that empathy for her position, knowing that she would be okay with yours enough that you could express that empathy really shows the disparity there. And anyway, it shows that you have those skills, but only they can only go so far. Well, it's all in the receiver, obviously. I mean, you know, we have, we've, I've had that 
convo with my mom about, you know, mom, I understand why you didn't leave this marriage. I came from a family with no money, total paycheck to paycheck. Again, I had everything that we ever needed, but, you know, money was always a thing in our family. And I've said to my mom, I get that you didn't leave him. You had nowhere to go. You had no money. And you had three kids. You were just trying to like get through it all. But that doesn't mean I can't be mad at you about that too. And my mom is able to receive that information and know that those darker feelings can live with the more positive feelings and that it's all one and it doesn't need to be heard as a threat. Just It just needs to be heard. So I think it's all about the receiver that obviously makes your ability to find the language to say it much easier. Mm. Was I just eloquent again? Yeah, yeah, you, you were. Delete, you were eloquent. You can, delete yeah. that. you can delete that. But <laughs> I mean, I just had this fight with my mom about the church the other day because, you know, my mom still doesn't have any money, but she puts $10 in the revolving, mm. you know, they put the basket around after communion or before, whenever they do it. And about a year ago, there was a big, big bust in the Pittsburgh Catholic Diocese, which is the, I think, the second largest diocese in the country. And a lot of the Pedophile priests were from that and ushered around and shoveled around in the auspices of that thing. And my mom was very disturbed by it. And she was, she said, I'm really questioning. She was having literally an identity crisis at age 85. And she was like, I just don't feel good about the church. This is really upsetting to me. So of course, like any loving child, I used that opportunity to prey upon her weakness. (laughs) And, um, And I was like, do you mom? Good, because here's when you put that $10 in the basket, that's going right to the Vatican, which keeps doing this. And so I was pretty hard on her. You know, I, I kind of let her have it. We, a couple, we talked about it over a couple of weeks because she was really debating not going to church anymore or definitely not putting money in that basket. And, you know, after a while, she said, I don't feel great about this, but I've been a Catholic all my life. It's part of my identity. And I put that money in the basket because I believe it goes to Janie, who works in the office, and Father Blah, who's a good priest at this church. And I have to respect that. I talked her out of eating a Chick-fil-A. There's only so much I can do. (laughs) I want to ask you um, another deep question about your father here before we go to break. Mm. You referenced that, you know, your you and your siblings lamented that you didn't, in a sense, care more about your father's passing. But I want to know, or the question I want to ask is, was there a release of something for you? You know, you've you've spoken now about how in some ways you wish your mother would have left your father. And what was the after effects of that uh, for you? And did it in some ways unshackle you to be even more of the person you wanted to be? Or did it not quite have any bearing on you really at that point because you were someone that had developed enough self-confidence to know that his point of view did not really affect you day to day? Well, if I was writing a script about this story, I would definitely give it the sort of ending that <laughs> that you're intimating out, which is sort of this like larger discovery. But like most things in real life, it it really wasn't that. It just became about my dad was really sick with Alzheimer's and was going to have to go into a home uh, where he would never have left. So it actually was a colossal relief 
mostly for my mom because she was taking care of him. But mm. there was a moment I do remember about, which was the last time I saw him, which was about six months before he died, where I did go home and I had a moment where I looked at him and I, I had this realization of like, oh my God, he's this tiny man who is afraid. Wow. And because that was not, I was so scared of my dad growing up and he's this big guy, you know, football player in high school. And it was so, he was always so big to me that there was a, that moment I remember so clearly of seeing like, wow, this is an old man who's really frightened. And the, the humanity of that moment was, um, really overwhelming, actually, and very intense and and helpful. So I would say that was a bigger release than his actual death because his death was more of like freedom for my mom and freedom for him because, as I mentioned, he would not have gotten out of that home. So he, (laughs) one of the most thoughtful things that he ever did was dying when he did. And I don't, that sounds harsh, but I actually mean it in the most sort of poetic way uh because it's true wow that is beautiful all right that's the break we'll be back in just a couple of minutes god and other delicacies has a weekly newsletter if you'd like to subscribe email me at god's delicate show at gmail.com and i'll put you on the list Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me, because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with Eric, and one thing that we talked about at the break is that it's time to hear about your relationship with your husband, David, who I know very well, and talk about, you know, when you met him. It's a a relationship that has been in your life a long time. Well, David and I have been together 27 years. Congratulations. So it's a long time we met when we were two. And (laughs) I, um, you know, it's funny how life works out. You know, I always thought I would be with somebody who was really social and dynamic and edgy. And in fact, you know, I've married one of the world's largest nerds. And <laughs> for listeners of this podcast, uh, you may or may not know that Nick is also a gigantic nerd. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I guess I am drawn to nerds. I always thought I was drawn to super cool people. But that, um, well, it turns out that the super cool people are nerds. That's what you figured out, thankfully, for your life, that you figured out that the nerds are the coolest people. Oh, see, that wasn't where I was going. Where I was going, where I was going is that if it wasn't for nerds, we cool people wouldn't know how cool we were. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, that seems fair. Whatever, whatever we'll we need spin. to do. <laughs> but, you know, he's a science guy. He's a doctor. He's just very logical and emotional. And so, you know, when we argue, we I'm very fast with words, and he's usually thinking through something. So he's now learned after years where if we are actually arguing, he will literally leave the room for five minutes, gather his thoughts, and then come out and be like, by the way, you do X, Y, and Z. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I used to always be able to win arguments because I was just faster with words, but he's usually, unfortunately, 
write. So um, I just kind of have to try to not give him the time to figure out how right he is. But he has developed strategies, as we all do in our marriage. So, uh, That's you know, funny. he's uh, he's quiet and an introvert. He's a great gamer, hyper gamer guy. That's one of the reasons mm-hmm. that we connect, you know. he's He loves to game. Mm-hmm. He is a gamer and... Uh, <laughs> shamer and a no-namer. I don't even know what <laughs> There that you means. go. That's funny. No, he's... he's um, I like it. You know, he's just very shy and doesn't need to be around people a lot. And so we're very, very different. And, you know, we never, we rarely end up with the person we think we're going to end up with. But he's, uh, he makes me laugh every single day still. And I certainly hope that the last thing I see before I die is his stupid face. Oh, so I so feel like beautiful. that, I think that's still um, something good to say. Oh, that's gorgeous. And he had cancer a few years ago. Yes. That um, ended up being fine. But, you know, did go through the radiation and the chemo and uh, that sort of thing. And, and you know, those moments are always very intense. You know, there was a, I remember really clearly one day we were, we lived in New York City and we were walking in Riverside Park and it was a Thursday when he went in for his um, testing and then he was, wasn't going to find out until Tuesday, you know, what stage it was in or whatever. And, and I remember taking a walk together that day and saying like, oh, you could be dead in six months. And just mm-hmm. having that moment of very brutal clarity of what that might really mean. Now, of course, we were very lucky that that was not the case, but that was a reality. And you either, you know, you go through life with things like that being a part of your reality or not. And we were really lucky that we went for a long time with it not being a part of our reality. And then it was. So, you know, at those times you realize how, you know, it sounds so corny, but just how precious everything is. I mean, you know, Nick, we've talked about this, but I think, you know, this whole pandemic thing, while it's so difficult in so many ways, it's, it really is a gift in others in that you just have this moment where, yeah, you can't, if you live away from your parents or family or close friends, it's really frustrating not being able to see them. But you also have that feeling of, you know what, they're all safe and healthy and that's more important. And, we're really lucky and just really does pull you back to the basics in a way that is very easy to lose track of. Oh yeah. Do you feel like David's experience as in his disposition and profession as a doctor and a thinker, did he naturally fall into that as this cancer was happening to him directly or did he feel the pressure to try to react to his cancer in that way? Or did he, did you see emotional colors in him come out during that period? Did you guys, did your dynamic between each other change in any new ways? Or was it just sort of your dynamic sort of solidified as you went through that together? Yeah, again, you know, if I were writing it, it would have developed, but I think it didn't. Yes, I would say, but it's got sort of, stronger there's a there's another level of intimacy that comes with it that i think that's what it's about mm. you know i have a close uh girlfriend who had cancer and uh mastectomy and i went down during one of, of her surgeries for a week and you know there's just something about 
the intimacy of that sort of thing that is very intense and special. And that just takes you in a, to a different level of sort of tenderness, you know, because we, no matter how close we are with each other, it's, uh, there is sort of a cultural expectancy to not be tender. Like you keep things, even when you're having like a real conversation with a friend or a family member or whatever, there's still like part of you that's very easy to keep your guard up or just be hesitant to say the tender stuff. And, you know, and again, I've even probably prefaced three or four things just in this conversation with the phrase, it sounds corny, but, mm. and it's strange that we, that I do feel the need to save those kind of things because of course you know i want to come off as like i'm the cool dude who's the comedy guy i'm fun and you don't want to sound like a hallmark card either and that's i don't want to be squishy and soft and sentimental it's that whole thing i remember my i had this amazing poetry writing teacher in college at penn state amazing poet bruce weigel and he said that the first class and then repeated throughout that you know when you write poetry and i was a terrible poetry writer terrible but he would always say that you want it to be full of sentiment, but never sentimental. And that has always stayed with me in work and in life, that there's a difference. But you can't, I think sometimes we're so afraid of being sentimental that we hesitate to be full of sentiment. Hmm. At least I do. I really like that. I assume you know what I mean by that. You're a very full of sentiment human. Yes, I wonder. I mean, I'm a very sentimental human too. <laughs> so yes, you, you are. Know, yeah, you are. So maybe I, you know, maybe I'm. I mean, whatever. You know, like I'm not a poet. I want to express my sentimentality and this connection in conversation. I want to talk, and it's not that I can't write a lovely letter or whatever, but I tend to hit things much more on the nose. You know, that just is my thing. I want to. I don't like to obfuscate when it comes to really making sure a message is getting across. And poetry is beautiful for that so that we can live in the artistry of words and concepts and feel connections between aspects of life that reflect a deeper sense of mentality about the human experience, but might not be talking about humans in particular. But my thing is, man, I want to be able to just say it right to your damn face, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's why I have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but no, your fearlessness about it is definitely one of my favorite things about you because uh -huh. there is, usually it comes with a fear and anxiety and you, in all of your Omahaian gloriousness, do not have that kind of filter and fear and it's really nice. Thanks, man. You know, it's not so Refreshing, as they'd say. Oh, you know, like a fresca. And also, also gives you a little bit of gas like a fresca. Uh, that's also that's also something that I've been referred to as <laughs> gives you just a little bit of gas. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Eric. I appreciate it. So I know I've been talking a lot about very serious things, but one thing that that I do think is important to try to address, since you have mentioned that it's sort of about getting to know the subject of the podcast, is just sort of the role that comedy has played in my life and. I've been professionally within the comedy world for two decades now. And it's a curious thing because there, there really are very few gay people in comedy. 
actually, and uh, relatively by the numbers. And, and you know, this is true if you talk to a lot of women in comedy, there aren't a lot of women in comedy either, mm. um, or at least visibility-wise. It's been, it's only until recently that things have been a little different. It's been, you know, like a challenge and very rewarding in many ways to sort of navigate through very, what used to be a very sort of like frat brother sort of world. And certainly a lot of the movies that were made in the in the 20 years that I worked at Comedy Central were all those movies about the crazy guys who went to Vegas and got to be cool while their harsh, shrewish wives stayed at home and yelled at them over the phone. Right. And there were so many movies like that um, for so long. And, and it's exciting to see sort of the tide changing. And also kind of sad that hardly anybody makes comedy right now because we're in such a difficult time. But that journey kind of like through the professional comedy world and then, of course, just emotionally, the role that sort of comedy has played in my life have, have been just as telling as the cancer and marriage and religion and family part. Do you feel like, I mean, I've always found it to be kind of an extraordinary act of, of strength to see people, I mean, stand-up comedians are the ones that are most visible in this way because their responses are so, can be so immediate, whether it's through a tweet or something or just through, there's an action that comes at them from the world, from society, and then the response can be so immediate to it, a joke that they think about that day and put it out in their set the next day and it seems like what you're talking about is an affection for almost a reverence to some extent for the power of comedy when it's done right in times of difficulty. And so you're kind of lamenting that you feel like it's hard to do comedy right now or the world doesn't seem like they know, or at least the business doesn't seem like it knows how to handle comedy right now. And do you feel like, has that always been something you've, you're so funny and quick-witted and obviously we've seen that in the show do you feel sort of. like yeah well i'm doing everything i can to undercut you of course but <laughs> i <laughs> i guess what my real question here is am i right in saying that you have a reverence for comedy and a desire to do comedy in the face of these types of challenges because you see a worth in it that's just bigger than making a joke Sure. I mean, this is, I remember the very first time I sort of made a funny and I was maybe eight or nine years old and we were at a car wash at the kind that you drive through and there are all the signs for the different ones that you could get. And there was one sign that said polish wax and then $5.99 or whatever. But I remember my Aunt Patty saying, she was like, I'll polish wax. I wonder what that means. And I said in the backseat of the car, I think that's when they wax the inside of your car. <laughs> and I remember like everyone in the car laughing. Of course, <laughs> of course, my first joke had to be a, based in an ethnic stereotype from the 80s, but sure. we'll overpass sure. that right now to just say like, I remember in that moment having a real conscious moment of like, oh my God, I might be funny. And it really is a super duper powerful tool where obviously the insecure young gay kid in me, I always knew that I could win people over to like me because I was funny. And it was definitely something I sort of used, you know, with everybody was like, you know, the school jocks and the straight dudes and 
there was something that like, if you were funny, you got respect. It's always weird sort of to talk about this because there's this self-anointment that, that I'm doing, which I'm sure is obnoxious about like, oh, you're funny, really? Like, it's like saying I'm a international supermodel, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same, but I, I appreciate the, the, it's like, you know I appreciate I mean. the oh, self-effacing nature of it, but um, no, also this is your show and I'm asking you about the things that you care about. It's okay to talk about the things that you care about and the things that you're, that you know, that you're good at. Uh, but no, I think that's really powerful. And, and I was saying this earlier is like, I think I have a lot of respect for it. And I think it's so necessary. It's clearly so necessary in the human experience to have people help us process the horrible nature of what life can be with helping us make us laugh. Yeah, no, I mean, I obviously that's the people who do it so well, or, you know, like a typical episode of 30 Rock is as insightful and important as Handmaid's Tale, you know, in, yes. in just a different way. I need that. That's what, like, when I mentioned David makes me laugh every day, I absolutely could not be with somebody who didn't make me laugh every day. Some of his days are funnier than others, but he, <laughs> there's li- there isn't the day that goes by where I'm not like, oh, that was really smart and funny and I like you. And, you know, that we choose our friends like that too, I think. You know, I mean, we all have the friends in our life who really help us and especially when the comedy isn't all about the person himself. And every once in a while you get a friend who's the funny person and also the deep person and knows how to go in and out of all of those things. And, um, you know, that's Nick D'Augusto and some other people in my life. And, you know, that's what you try to find. That's a sweet sentiment. That was way too direct. Your professor would have been ashamed of the poetry. (laughs) I was too on the nose. (laughs) But Nick D'Augusto loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Eric. I love you, man. Thanks for being on the show. That's a beautiful ending. Thank you. I love you too. I'm very proud to be your best gay. Oh my gosh. You're so hardcore, are. Like I said, man, you sat at our table at the wedding. So thank you for having me. This did go in directions I wasn't expecting. And um, I'm feeling vulnerable, but also warm. Well, that feels kind of exactly where I want the show to be. <laughs> I feel like we're ending on the podcast equivalent of a snuggle. I'm happy to take that whenever I can get it. (laughs) All right. I love you, Eric Bloom, and thank you all for listening. Love you, friend. It was a pleasure. Hey, hey, kids. Hey, kids, your mother's making dinner. Waka, waka, waka. I, some of this will be edited, Eric. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Good, um, good.